Welcome back to another episode of Inside Rock. On this episode, we're going to be talking about memorable moments from the 60s. We're going to be breaking down memorable moments from the 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s. But this show, we're just going to focus on the 60s, Volume 1. Yeah, the 1960s, that was one troubled decade. Uh, Civil rights uh, movement, the Vietnam War, anti-war protests. Assassinations. Yeah, JFK was assassinated Mm -hmm. in the 60s. And then the term generation gap evolved in the 60s to separate uh, the flower children from the establishment. And uh, there was a lot of protests that happened. Far out, man. When you get, when you guys bring any weed, that would be groovy. <laughs> so we can get into this properly. <laughs> uh, yeah. Okay. I'll leave that to you guys. <clears throat> and you sure that you said you know troubled times? Yeah. Really? Why? Why? Well, everybody was smoking pot back then. Well, it was not only pot, but LSD was uh, predominant too. So anyway, there's a lot of there's a lot of history. To cover here, you know, we can't cover everything, but we got a lot of points here we want to we want to review. Yeah, what do and, you want to start off with? Well, you know, in 1962, I mean, we're jumping a little bit. I mean, but you know, Joan Baez debuted in 1960. You know, he was inspired by Bob Dylan, right? Folk singers. But uh, speaking of female singers, female singers really dominated the charts in in the, in the early 60s, including Little Eva. Connie Francis, Brenda Lee, The Crystals, The Shirelles, Mary Wells, there's and The Marvelettes. I mean, there's tons. That's quite a quite a list. Oh yeah, no, they were. They, they, were had, they had quite a few songs in the top ten too. Oh yeah, absolutely, they did. And yeah. then uh, Phil Spector came around. Everybody knew who Phil Spector is. He's a huge record producer, um, and he formulated the Wall of Sound, and it really changed the way a lot of bands were were recording in the studio. It basically was multi-layers of instruments that you wouldn't think would go with one another, but he would he would overlap them, like a electric guitar and a mandolin. Just as an example, like he would he was very creative in the way he produced and uh, had a lot of success with it in a lot of bands. Well, wasn't the the backup band there called the Wrecking Crew? Oh, the Wrecking Crew. We could do a whole show on the Wrecking Crew. Right. The Wrecking Crew were a group of session musicians. That um, were like they've they've recorded more more records than anybody in the history of of music. They're 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 that they they were that popular. Even more than the Stones. More than the Stones. Oh my gosh! <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. The Wrecking Crew worked on a lot of things you probably don't even realize, like TV theme songs, and they were the in part uh, part of the backing band for the Partridge Family. They did the theme song from Happy Days. Uh, Stuff like that you wouldn't even realize. Session musicians, really good group. Well, they must have made a lot of money. Oh, well, yeah, but you know what? The industry back then, you know, how much did they really make? But yeah, yeah, but they're a great bunch of talented guys, no, huh. no doubt. Anyway, speaking of uh, producers, I mean, you have to mention Barry Gordy. Uh, oh, yeah. And Motown. For sure. Um, Hitsville, USA. Um, you know, Barry Gordy. Started off actually he was a he was a former boxer, and uh, I didn't know that. Yeah, he was a boxer, and he decided to start this label. And uh, but during the 1960s, Motown achieved 79 records, 79, in the top 10 of the Billboard Billboard Hot 100 between 1960 and 1969. 
That's huge. Just from Motown Records. That's huge. One of the things I think of of the 60s, because majority of the 60s, I wasn't even born yet. <laughs> so, but there, there are some things uh, I look upon is uh, the one song by the Kingsmen. Oh, yeah. Louie Louie. Yeah. Louie Louie. Yeah, they're, they're one hit. It wasn't even a hit when they, they released it. No. Didn't become no. A, you know, didn't become popular until later. Yeah, that's right. What is it? I think it cost the, the band 50 bucks, and they ended up splitting the cost <laughs> to record that song. <laughs> uh, now, was that the Kingsman, or was that somebody else? That was the Kingsman. It was the Kingsman. Because the rights, uh, Richard Berry wrote the original. He did. And then uh, he sold the rights to a whole bunch of different bands who re-recorded it. Yes. Right? Well, and the, the, the Kingsmen wasn't even, they weren't the originals of that no, song. No, no, no. They, they got some of the rights and recorded it. In fact, the original single uh, from, from Barry only sold about 40,000 copies. And then he... Do you know how many the Kingsmen sold when it was released? 600. <laughs> 600. 600. And yeah, that's, uh, that's, that not, that's not quite enough for a platinum, is it? Not quite. No, <laughs> no. no. You, what do you think of, to be honest? Like some songs. Oh, just Animal have, House. Animal House. Are you Animal, kidding me? Oh, yeah. That's for what sure. I think I'm of, serious. too. Like, well, you, you, they couldn't have picked a better song for that one spot. Oh, for sure. <laughs> so the lead, the lead uh, guitarist in vocals was Jack Eli. Yes. Right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, <laughs> that version nobody knew what the hell he was saying. No, well, because of those indecipherable lyrics when it was first released, yeah, the FBI got a little suspicious and launched an investigation because there was they thought there was some type of hidden message. They played that song backwards, <laughs> forwards, different speeds. They didn't know what the fuck he was saying. And we, and we still don't know what he's saying. <laughs> oh. Like, how much time did the FBI have on their times to be worrying about this song? I think they were listening to the record and smoking weed at the time. Apparently, Jack Eli had to stand on a stool to reach yes. the microphone. And he had braces at the time as well. Yeah. So the braces, him reaching for the microphone, they, 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 I don't know. I guess I'm trying to defend them, but no one knew what, knew what he was saying. Yeah, no one knew. In uh, the Kingsman version, when it uh, had had national popularity, like it was just huge nationwide, the band had already split. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Did you know why it had national popularity? It was on a radio show. Oh, I remember they played it as the most... The, One like, of the, the worst, worst songs. songs. Yeah. 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 And everybody loved it. I know. Yeah. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. And it had the, an adverse effect, so good for them. You know, it seems like they, like that $50, $50 budget, it seemed like they just threw this song together, just first shot and just recorded it. Because the, there was an error in there. There was an error. Yeah. He started coming and singing, singing too early at That's one right. spot. Then he stopped, but the band just kept going. <laughs> and they just left it the way it and was. The, the, drum, it, the drummer filled the gap. Yeah. And uh, it worked, though, right? And you know what? When other bands do this song... Some of them actually repeat that error. They do because it, that's yeah. they, they thought that's how it's supposed to sound. Well, it's a, it's yeah. a classic part of the song. It's it is awesome. classic. You know how yeah. many versions of that song there there have been? Four thousand. Four thousand versions of Louis Louis or Louis Louis. Four thousand different bands different have tried it. Different versions. Yeah. yeah. Different versions. Yeah. Isn't that crazy? It's a great. Tune. They say it's one of the most recorded songs in in music in rock. It's because you don't need to know the words. <laughs> No, no, 
<laughs> Actually, that's a great song to to pick for like um, uh, what is it? What is it called when you go up into the mic? Karaoke. Karaoke. That'd be a great song. Just have a few drinks and just babble a few things. They'd love you. He sounds great. He sounds great. <laughs> that's oh. awesome. Chai, you got this one, I think. Uh, Phillips and the compact cassette tapes. When did they come in? I mean, when did they come in? Aren't they still in? Well, for you, they are. <laughs> uh, 1962, Phillips 62. invented the compact uh, cassette. That's what it was called back then. And before that, there was LPs. Yes. What, and, what do you mean and before it, that? It, well, I know, still, you, <laughs> you still listen to your LPs. Are they out now? What happened? Yeah, <laughs> LPs and uh, 8-track tapes. I just, bought, I just bought a record today. 22 Explosive Hits by KTEL. Classic. I'm just saying, great stuff. All right, all right, let's go. Well, I mean, yeah. So the the compact cassettes, they gave rise to the mixtapes, right? Love the mixtapes. Yes. Well, originally when the compact cassette came out, you could they weren't like we couldn't or the general public couldn't record on them. No, you just you had to buy it with information on it. Yeah, that's right. Then later on, you yeah, and when you could record on it, well. Oh, that, that that was the best. Oh yeah, that was the best. Making mixtapes, and I remember we used to uh, do our try to do some edits oh, uh, yeah. to mix some songs or change them up a bit with the tape decks. Yeah, it was great. Yeah, for sure. Whenever I, whenever I think of mixtape, I, I think of awesome mixtape number one. What Guardians of the Galaxy? Guardians of the Galaxy. Yeah, and actually from that list of the twelve that are on that mixtape, there's only four that are really from the '60s. The rest are from the 70s and after. Yeah, I guess you're right. Yeah. yeah. Hooked on a Feeling, originally done by B.J. Thomas, 1969. Got that on vinyl. Spirit in the Sky, Norman Greenbaum, 1969. Yeah. I Want You Back, again, 1969. Jackson 5, which yeah. didn't become a number one hit for them until 1970. And then Ain't No Mountain High Enough, 1967 by Marvin Gaye. There you go. Tammy Terrell. Good stuff. Actually, the blank cassette was in 1964. I just... I just oh, yeah. looked at it in 1964. Blank, so you could record your own, yeah. Yes. Oh, we, had, we had a ton of fun doing our own mixtapes. For sure. Yeah, we did. What, when, when you think of con, like the cassette, the big game, game changer I, I can remember or think of was the Sony Walkman. Yeah. Like to bring it with you when you're walking around. Yeah. A mixtape. Yeah. It was awesome. Right now, there's a bunch of young people listening to this going, how old are these guys? I know. They've got 6,000 songs on their phone. <laughs> well, just remember, I'm the youngest. Yeah, or even <laughs> just Spotify. Yeah, for sure. There's a plug for Spotify. Yeah, you, know, you can listen to us on Spotify. There you go. Uh, anyway, so let's jump to 1964. I'm not done talking about cassettes. Aren't you? I remember I was an audiophile and Creeks. You could appreciate oh, that. Yeah. I remember there was a tape deck. I used to have a subscription to this magazine. It just, every month came out, like all the, 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 the tape decks and turntables, their prices, their, their ratings and everything. I remember there was a Nakamichi tape deck. that It, it was like over two grand. Or it was around $2,000. And back then, like that was the ultimate, right? Nakamichi. Not that I remember that brand, but you don't? Nakamichi? Were you smoking weed at the time? <laughs> I know, I didn't. I don't smoke weed. <laughs> that was awkward. I, that I'm was, convinced. That was very good. Anyways, I just remember looking at the tape decks. Uh, the Nakamichi, I just remember, was so expensive. Everybody wanted it, but well, apparently, except for you, Greeks. <laughs> Nakamichi sounds like something out of Die Hard. The Tower. What was that? Nakatomi. Well, 
Oh, shit. Is that what I'm thinking about? <laughs> <laughs> oh, well. Oh, let's continue. That's uh, great. Are, are you done with the cassettes now? I guess. I uh, guess. Anyway, 19... 19- hey, you, you know what, what I found? Oh, my okay, we're not done. Do you know what I okay. found? What? Uh, I found your mixtape of Van Halen. Really? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Found it in uh, Dad's Attic. Are you serious? Yeah, it's up there on audio cassette. Van Halen. And uh, in big letters... It says, keep this with exclamation marks on it that you wrote. That is awesome. Yeah. Was it a, on a chromium dioxide tape? <laughs> it wasn't metal. I think it was oh, chromium it dioxide. Yeah. Well, yeah, the the well, metal then, tapes, they were expensive, boy. Well, that would last forever, but the chromium dioxide would disintegrate. And being up there, it's, it's probably disintegrated. There you go. Well, it's the type of metals, too, on the, on the tape. There were more. The metal was a more magnetic... Uh, um, I'm not going to get into technical terms because I don't know what the hell I'm talking about. <laughs> but it was just better. It was better. It, was it better. sounded better. Yes. Uh, can I talk about 1964 now? Oh, uh, okay, you, let's move on. If you must. All right, 1964, February 9th, 1964, The Ed Sullivan Show, The Beatles, their first appearance. The British Invasion. The British Invasion. Yeah, The Beatles came on. And uh, I Want to Hold Your Hand would climb up to number one on the U.S. Uh, charts the month after they appeared on Ed Sullivan. Yeah, it, was, it was unprecedented when they, when they went there. They, usually you go on the Ed Sullivan show and Ed Sullivan would say, okay, you come on my show, I'm not paying you anything. You get the exposure, which is uh, my contribution. The Beatles were one of the very first acts that demanded a $10,000 appearance fee. And they agreed to it if the Beatles would come back three times. So the Beatles actually appeared on Ed Sullivan three times through the 1960s. Right on. Ed Sullivan, isn't that the guy that's like, we're going to have a really big shoe? That's him. That's, that's him. him. That's, that's him. him. Oh, okay. That's yeah. Him. Do you know, I, getting off topic a little bit. Well, back to of, cassettes? No, no, no. Oh. Uh, the Doors, when they appeared on Ed Sullivan, uh, Ed Sullivan said, it gave him strict instructions for uh, Light My Fire. And one, the line is, uh, baby, you couldn't get much higher. Yeah. He said, you can't say higher. It's like, it, it implies that it's something to do with drugs. He, he wanted him to say better. So he, Jim Morrison agreed. Goes on. What does he do? Just saying it the way he wanted to. Yeah, good for him. And then Ed Sullivan banned him from the show. <laughs> he said, you're not coming back again. Oh, he, he was a tyrant for that show. He, uh, oh, yeah. he ruled over with an iron fist. But he had a very, very popular TV show. When the Beatles were on, 73 million people tuned in which accounted for about 60% of the entire TV audience in the United States. So six out of ten wow. people were watching the Beatles that Well, night. that's because you can't stream it, rewatch it, you can't videotape it, you couldn't do anything. If you didn't watch it, you'd miss it. Of course they're going to have that many people tuning in. <laughs> right? right? It was sold out way in advance. And he, Walter Cronkite and Richard Nixon called into the show and said to Ed Sullivan, we'd like to have some tickets for our daughters. <laughs> and he, he, Ed Sullivan didn't have any to give him, and he was appealing to everybody, please, if somebody's got extra ticket, i got to give it to these two Freaking Walter people. Cronkite, man. I know. I know. Anyway, they uh, they went on the show, and... Uh, <laughs> Walt gets denied. Denied. <laughs> Isn't that the video? I think I've seen it. The video where, like, the, the girls in the crowd are just freaking out on this TV show, correct? Freaking out. And freaking they were, out. They were screaming so loud, you could hardly even hear the band. Right. Um you know, the, hmm. the songs or the words. And well, the you experienced firsthand. I, I was a little bit too young, but at the Princess Theater, which you, we've mentioned in our previous podcast. Hard Day's Night. Hard Day's Night. <laughs> uh, was, you were in the balcony with, with, with Mom. Yeah, I couldn't. You couldn't hear anything. Just girls. <laughs> they were 
literally ripping their own hair out. And it got crazy. So we ended up leaving and going into the projection booth. With For Dad. safety. Well, we had to. I mean, it was ridiculous. You couldn't hear anything. There's no point even being there. That's awesome. Uh, they were freaking That's awesome. Out. What a great memory. But uh, Beetle, <laughs> Beetle Mania. Wow. I don't get it. <laughs> Anyways, let's go. I don't, I don't get it. No. Now, the, what was huge in the 1960s as well was the folk music uh, movement. Because the folk music movement was closely related to uh, civil rights and, uh, uh, you know, people speaking out against the establishment. And folk music was like their voice of opposition and criticism. That sounds like somebody we may know. Yeah, a few people. Bob Dylan. That's correct. And, and Joan Baez. Well, Joan Baez was now, the female version of Bob Dylan, really. Yeah, and Bob Dylan, you know, he was looked at as being kind of their prophet, and they, they loved Bob Dylan. He would come on stage with a, an acoustic guitar, and he'd sing all his folk uh, favorites, like Blowing in the Wind, Mr. Tambourine Man, and they loved him because they felt that he was the voice of the folk music movement and the opposition to the establishment. And then... July 25th, 1965 came. Uh-huh. Yeah, at the Newport Folk Festival. A year before he'd been there, he got huge, huge, uh, you know, following from that folk music a year earlier, and they mm-hmm. all loved him. He came out onto the stage with an electric guitar. Without announcing to anyone before that that he was bringing out electric. Correct. Yeah, right. So yeah. they came to hear acoustic folk music, and they got an electric bob. Yeah, and he started, and you have to remember, too, that uh, Like a Rolling Stone had just been released. Uh, two weeks earlier. About two weeks earlier. Yeah. And uh, he'd used the uh, the backup blues band uh, to record that. And he started playing, and people were not happy. Remember his crowd? He got booed, right? He got booed, and uh, he kept on playing. Uh, but they booed him because they felt he had sold out. He'd gone to the commercial side, and... Uh, they didn't care about the money. They wanted him to be true to their, their messages. And Bob just kept on playing. So he started off with Maggie's Farm, uh, kept on going. And uh, you know what? Uh, the rest is history. Pretty easy to get in trouble back then, if that's, if that's yeah, what uh, happened. Yeah, Pete Seeger, who was one of the uh, like the icons of the folk mm-hmm. mu- uh, music movement and a very, very uh, prominent activist at the time, was one of the organizers of that concert. And he's, his version is, if he, he said, if I'd had an axe, I'd have chopped up the audio cords and stopped the show. Um, and that's, that's translated into, he tried to do it with an axe, but according to him, he said, if I had an axe, I would. Mm-hmm. Um, Bob Dylan heard this, and he was really upset that Pete Seeger felt that way. Um, Pete Yarrow, who was the MC at the time, mm-hmm. Asked him to come back out and play one more song acoustically. Uh, and after a little while, he agreed. So Bob Dylan came back out and played one more song. But after that, it wasn't the same. <laughs> he came back out, plugged in a, a distortion pedal. I'll fix these bastards. <laughs> you know, exactly. Yeah, I, yeah I, you want to see more of it. You watch uh, No Direction Home, which is a, a Bob Dylan documentary. He talks quite extensively about... Uh, about the, the Newport Festival. You put a link to that in our show notes? Yeah, I can do that. All right. Yeah, put that in the show notes. No Direction Home. It's on uh, Netflix and YouTube, by the way. All right, Creeks, what are you thinking about for the 60s? Well, I mean, are we going in order here? Are we jumping around? Jumping yeah, around. Jump around. 
well, I mean, the Beatles released Sgt. Pepper. That was a huge, huge album for them. It was uh, their eighth studio album, and it was inspired by a Beach Boys album, which you're going to talk about. Why don't we talk about that one first? No, Pet Sounds. Pet Sounds. Yeah, it released in 1966. Now, you have to remember, too, that Brian Wilson had had a nervous breakdown. Oh, yeah. Uh, left the band uh, to go on kind of hiatus. And then they brought in Bruce Johnston uh, to cover for Brian Wilson um, to do some of the uh, concerts that they had booked. And Brian Wilson was off in the studio uh, just writing writing songs. And he came up with a, a new kind of sound that was predominant on the Pet Sounds uh, album. So there was... What are some of the songs? Uh, for example, God Only Knows. God Only Knows, well. Which Paul McCartney said he thinks is one of the best songs ever written. Mm-hmm. Uh, Sloop John B., Wouldn't It Be Nice. Uh, and there's a whole bunch of other songs on there. Those are probably the most important or the most popular three on that album. But there's a whole bunch of other songs on that album. You can sense the, you know, the different vibe and the different type of sounds that Brian, Brian Wilson integrated into that particular album. Is that the album with... Um, like a- is it a goat or a llama or something on the it's cover? It's a goat. It's a goat? Yeah. <laughs> the band said we did not get along that well with the animals on the cover. It looks like the, they're one big happy family. But, but let's do an album about that, them anyways. <laughs> I guess that photo shoot was a nightmare. Oh, man. <laughs> yeah, the Rolling Stone poll put Pet Sounds as number two as some of the, one of the most influential uh, yep. albums of all time, only second to Sgt. Pepper. And you're going to talk about Sgt. Pepper... Mm-hmm. And Sgt. Pepper, the Beatles say that Pet Sounds was an influential album for them in developing Sgt. Pepper. Oh, for sure. You know, I meant to mention something earlier. I, I, I've got to mention this because we were talking about Phil Spector, the, fir- the first segment there. Uh, Paul McCartney was really upset that Phil Spector took over. The, he was a producer on Let It Be, which was ultimately their last album. And Phil Spector put his spin on it with the wall of sound. And McCartney said he pretty much ruined their work. Now, Lennon and Harrison don't agree. They continued to use, even after they broke up, they continued to use Spector on, uh, on their work. But uh, McCartney reissued the album and reworked it in 2003. And he said he despectralized it. Hmm. And... Uh, he said, particularly the song, uh, The Long and Winding Road, he said uh, that was not the way he wanted it to sound on Let It Be. So he, if, you know, if you get a chance, listen to the 2003 version of the album, and it sounds way different. Even the song Let It Be sounds way different. There's more guitar in it and less organ. Um, anyway, I just wanted to mention that because hmm. McCartney was very particular about the production of the album, and he got overruled, and he was not happy. So we're still on the Beatles topic. We'll go back to Sgt. Pepper. Yeah. Yeah, Sgt. Pepper, wasn't it? Uh, it was around Sgt. Pepper. There was supposed to be some kind of rumor around its release about Paul being dead. Um, well, yeah, Magical Mystery Tour, Sgt. Pepper, yeah. Abbey Road. I mean, yeah, there was a whole article. That was the, uh, I forget what, what, what paper it came out in, but there was an article that, that it was very convincing that, that Paul was actually dead. I mean, if you look at Abbey Road, he's walking across. He's the only one barefoot. Yeah. Now, uh, what year did Sgt. Pepper come out? That was 67. Yeah. See, and the, and the Beatles stopped touring 
in 66. In the, the end of 66, yeah. 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 And we'll talk about why that happened in a few minutes. But, yeah. Yeah. yeah, so in August, August uh, 29th was their last public concert at Candlestick Park uh, in 1969. Oh, in 66. Well, or 66, Before yeah. they came back, before they got back together again. Now, they didn't break up. They just no, stopped touring. They stopped touring. Yeah, they didn't break yeah. up. Yeah, they stopped touring. They, they were still playing together, but they stopped doing public concerts. Yeah. Uh, uh, August 29th was Candlestick, 1966. You know, I, I'm not a huge Beatles fan. You're out. Out. I'm not. Get out. <laughs> I, I, Get out of the studio. I said not a huge one. I, I can appreciate what they what they have accomplished and the, the music writing. I it's you can't you can't knock them. I was just when I was younger, I was never really into them. I but, um, apologize for that then. Okay, very good. Thank you. Um, I, but, should have, I should have made him listen to more Beatles, I, I guess. That's right. But you know what? You, you, sometimes you mention about uh, Creeks. You mention about how something could be a, a whole episode. From what I was reading about that album, Sgt. Pepper, we could do... Oh, yeah. Like, well, you could massive, do a whole episode just on Easily that one episode on yeah, that album. On that album, for sure. Yeah. What? Well, what were you going to say? Well, I was going to say, you know, when they when they released the album, you look at the tracks on the album, tons of good songs, two songs uh, that were left off. And it was the uh, it was the production company that actually said, you know, we want to leave these two tracks off. They didn't seem to fit. Strawberry Fields, Forever, oh my. and Penny Lane. So Strawberry Fields, Forever, and Penny Lane was released as a double A single. So you imagine that? Two of the best Beatles songs. Yeah. And it was released as a single, a double, double A, double A single. Wow. Isn't that crazy? So imagine if they were part of that album. Oh, man. Like, I mean, it's one of the best selling albums in history anyway. One of. Right. But uh, yeah, to leave those two off, crazy. Now that was 67, you said. Yeah, 67. Yeah. So let's, let's go, let's just talking about the Beatles. Let's go back to 66. Yeah, right. So again, this is a huge event in the 60s is when uh, Lennon is in an interview. This is in March of uh, 1966. And he says within the interview, and he makes reference to, we're more popular than Jesus now. Well, they were on top of the world at that top. point, right? They were yep. the best thing. That's and a very bold statement. Though. Well, he actually, John Lennon said before he died, he, he regrets saying that. He said that in an interview because he regrets saying oh, that. Oh, really? Yeah. Why? Well, because well, it hurt the career or? Well, there's a whole oh, interview yeah. of him apologizing yeah. what led up to that. I mean, they had to coax him for a while to apologize. And yeah. then he started to realize the impact it was having. Oh, yeah. Not only on the band and his career, but on the general population, the youth population in the U.S. Now, what's what's interesting, though, is that the interview and that statement were first published in the London Evening Standard in March of 66. And no one really cared. They just thought, oh, just some pop guy yapping off. Mm-hmm. And it, it didn't do anything in, in Britain. It was then republished in American teen magazine called Date Book. That'll do it. On July 29th. <laughs> and it set off a firestorm. Yeah. And that one event there essentially started to signal the eventual end of their public touring uh, career. As I, as I mentioned, their last public one was August 29th. So on July 29th, it's published. And one month later, they stopped touring. Yeah. But 
what happened was, I mean, the, the, the KKK got a hold of it, the Ku, the Ku Klux Klan. I think we know what the KKK is. For those of you out there that didn't know what KKK was, thank thank you for elaborating. Well, no problem. The Ku Klux Klan. It's hard to say. Can I say bite me? <laughs> you did, you just did. Anyways, oh. th- thanks, John. <laughs> Damn it. So the KKK started to demonstrate and go on TV interviews saying that they were going to stop the concert, and there was even a threat of uh, assassination, saying if if Lenin showed up for his show in Memphis on August 19th, they were going to assassinate him. So they went and did the show anyway. They got inside and they were playing and somebody threw a cherry bomb from the balcony (laughs) and it went off. And all the Beatles thought somebody had shot John. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know why that's funny, but it is. Yeah, and uh, and you know what? It upset him so much that after Candlestick Park... Lennon said, I, I need to take a break. I can't, I can't do this anymore. Um, so they... Uh, Three months they took off. Yeah, they, they, started, they stopped. And uh, he eventually apologized in a press conference for the impact that his statement had and tried to clarify they didn't mean what it, you know, literally what he said. He was using it figuratively. Uh, but it had a huge impact on him. And they were, they were burning albums. And Paul McCartney remembers saying, well, they're burning the albums? Well, does that mean they have to buy them first? And <laughs> we're good with it. Then that's okay. Yeah, he said, playing them is optional. As long as you buy them, we're happy. Wow. Wow. <laughs> yeah, then they realized what kind of an impact that had later. But that was a huge event in the 60s, for sure. Didn't the Dixie Chicks learn anything from this story? <laughs> yeah, I know. Dixie <laughs> Chicks. <laughs> yeah, politics and music don't mix. Wow. And politics and religion and music don't mix. A lot of things don't... Never mind. (laughs) I better be careful. (laughs) Yeah, be very careful. Okay. It was when when they took that break that Paul was on an airplane, uh, and that's where he got the idea for Sgt. Pepper. Uh, He was uh, on a flight to London uh, when they were on that hiatus, that touring hiatus, and uh, that's where he got the idea for the Edwardian military theme for Sgt. Pepper. Right. Well, when you say they were on a hiatus, they they only performed one more time publicly. On the roof of Apple Apple Corps. Yeah. That was it. Yeah. And wow. that was that was three years later. Yeah, that's right. Wow, that really took a nosedive, didn't it? So it wasn't, it wasn't three month hiatus. They maybe wow. they took a hiatus from recording, but the public performances, Candlestick Park in sixty six, and then the next one wasn't until the roof of Apple in nineteen sixty nine. Nineteen sixty nine, yeah. Yeah. Wow. Okay, I'm gonna I'm going to back up just a little bit because we, we can't pass this because you, that was, what year were you talking about? That was 66. All right. This, we're going back a little bit, uh, 64 when Pete Townsend oh, yeah. broke his guitar. guitar. Yeah. First time. Yeah. He first time. Smashed a guitar. Yeah. yeah. First time for him. Well, he, there was some other, uh, bands that have destroyed instruments before him, but I think he was labeled the first rock guy to smash his guitar. Yes. But and anyways, the way anyways, <laughs> Queeks hates when I say anyways. Swear to God, we're gonna have we're gonna have an episode on anyways. Anyways, if no, do you know? I was just gonna say it again. <laughs> do you know? Do you know? Do you know why or what made him? Well, I'm just gonna ask you. What what prompted him to do it in the first place? Keith right. Moon pissed him off. Keith, oh yeah. Well, that was on <laughs> many occasions. Keith Moon pissed everybody off. 
Yeah, yeah he that's he probably do an episode on Keith. Well, Moon. just like in our last episode, we talked about him putting a bomb in the in the drum, in the drum set and almost blew off Townsend. Well, he didn't and, put a bomb; he put fireworks that went well, off all pretty, at once. Pretty close to a bomb. Yeah, <laughs> they all went off all at once. Yeah, yeah. but uh, so he was um, he was taking his guitar out of the case, and he was there was a, a, a low ceiling, and he as he was lifting it up, he hit the guitar in the ceiling, which which broke the the headstock mm-hmm. of, of the guitar. And he and he was co- actually quoted uh, uh, saying that you know uh, he was expecting everyone because there was there was people in the room with him when he did this and he broke it. He was expecting the people to go, oh oh my gosh, Pete broke his guitar. Oh no, is, do we have another one? Because he expected something. No one gave a shit. <laughs> no one cared. So that pissed him off so much that when he got on stage, yeah, he decided he's you know what, guitar is broke. I'm just going to really put on a show and I'm going to smash this shit out of this thing. <laughs> And that was the first time. Yeah, it was the first time. That, that's that's how it happened because it was already broken, and he was just upset that no one that's cared cool. like he did. That's cool. And he just uh, and everybody started cheering, and it became one of their trademarks. Yeah, yeah. Oh, wow. that, that that's that's a huge thing in history. Him smashing his guitar. Yeah, yeah. So I, I just wanted to bring that up because we that was back in '64. We are jumping around a little bit, but that's, that's okay. okay. These are just. Moments from the 60s. Rolling Stone magazine included this event in their list of 50 moments that change rock and roll. So Pete Townsend smashing the guitar. Yeah, so that's how much of an impact it made, yes. That's awesome. I just want to go back to Sgt. Pepper for a second. Uh, That was the first rock album to win Album of the Year at the Grammy Awards in 1968. Isn't that amazing? The first album? The the fir- first, first, it was the first rock LP. Rock LP, okay. Yeah, first rock LP to win um, album of the year hmm. at the Grammys. And um, you know the last song on, on the album is called A Day in the Life. Right. And A Day in the Life appears on as number one song on Rolling Stone's 500 Best Songs of All Time. I mean, it did at one time. I don't know mm. if it's still that way. Um but it was on there. You know the last chord, that piano chord? Yes. That's They call that the longest note in music history. It, like it goes on forever. The guy who played that note, his name was uh, Mal Evans. He was a roadie for, for the band. He did chores for them, errands. He is the, and he, and he, play, he played that final note on the piano. Why? Because they asked him to. If the Beatles ask you to play the final note, you play it. That's it. Okay, press it. Now! <laughs> Mel Evans, that's quite a story. I'm not going to get into it now, but we can elaborate that on another show. Elaborate on that. You know, bit. we can do a whole other episode but on the Beatles. A that guy's interesting. Beatles. I mean, he was with them for, 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 a, long, for a long time, and uh, he died. He the, died, the he road died he tragically. He got, he got shot by, by police. Um, for holding an air rifle. He was high, I guess he was high on LSD. He was tripping and his girlfriend called the cops and uh, they tried, They came in and they were told he was tripping and he had an air rifle and uh, they, they shot him. Shot him, uh, six shots at him, four of them killed him. Wow. Yeah, Mel Evans, the guy who, who played the final note on A Day in the Life. Good to know. There you go. On that, they uh, should have played that note on his funeral. 
Maybe they did. Maybe they did. <laughs> Maybe. So you're gonna you're gonna talk about Woodstock later, right? Oh man, you know, there's another there's another event in the '60s you could spend a whole show on. Right. What a fantastic story. I mean, there's so many f- fun facts for Woodstock. And everybody knows about Woodstock, but a lot of people don't know about the concert that preceded Woodstock that kind of provided some momentum for it. So it was like was two the, years earlier, right? Uh, I don't think it was two years. Oh, when was it? it was, oh, this The Seattle Pop Festival was in 1969. Oh, I'm two, thinking of Monterey. No, this was like, when? what was what month was uh, Woodstock in? The middle of August 1969. Wow, this one was in July of 69. The Seattle Pop Festival at Gold Creek Park in uh, Woodenville. Now, this is a three-day festival. There were fifty to 70,000 people were there. And what's different, the organizers hired the Black Panthers instead of the police in order to uh, keep crowd control and protection. Probably a better choice than... Hells Angels? Yeah, the Stones. (laughs) The Stones at Altamont just a few months later in December, where, you know, that didn't work out very well for the Stones. So there was no riot issues or anything like that? No, they had no problems. And... The headliner was supposed to be Jim Morrison and the Doors, but Jim Morrison got out there and he just started heckling the crowd, yelling obscenities and just acting weird. You know, he's really an asshole. It's all part of the show, baby. It's all part of the show. Honestly. And this up and new coming blues band, they called him at the time from Britain, Led Zeppelin, came in and stole the show. Awesome. And all the critics and all the people there thought Led Zeppelin was Definitely the the, the star nice. the star of the concert, um, so it was definitely definitely a milestone for Led Zeppelin, uh, but the Seattle Pop Festival really was uh, a milestone leading toward Woodstock. It kind of provided uh, awareness and you know the fact that this kind of large concert could be successful. Hmm. The fact that, I mean the fact that Zeppelin wasn't at Woods, Woodstock. Uh, because it was such a huge event, and when you think of 1969, that was uh, Zeppelin's debut album, and number one and two came out in 1969, right? Right. So, I mean, maybe they were busy in the studio, who knows? Speaking of Woodstock, uh, a couple years ago in my travels, I uh, visited the the farm location where Woodstock was held. That was in New York, right? Uh, I believe so, yes. Yeah. Yes. You believe so? You don't know well, where you yeah, were? I went to so many places a couple of years ago. Were you smoking that it was, weed? It was the weed. Here we go. He was tripping. <laughs> he was tripping. Where, where, where am I? Anyways. Is this, is this Woodstock? <laughs> Anyways, once I finished my fifth dube. <laughs> uh, yeah, anyways, I visited the location. Anyways, yeah, okay. And um, it was a farmer who rented out his, uh, part of his land, about 600 acres. He rented it out to the, to the venue. So, yeah, it was just neat to, to be there. What was the, the farmer's name? Well, since you ask, it was Max. Max! Yasger. <laughs> Max Yasger. Yes. And actually, his neighbors <laughs> tried suing him. Really? Yeah, well, they were pissed. Well, can you imagine? Do you know how many people... When they, that was not supposed to be a free concert, by the way. They no, were, they were actually... Just, well, you can see the farmers saying to them... Yeah, you can use the field. Just make sure you clean them up after yourself when you're done. <laughs> the, the cleanup of, of, of Woodstock cost over $10,000 in 1969. That's a lot of money back then. Yes. You, it was a complete disaster. 
There was, it was just stuff everywhere. Well, Max and his cows weren't very happy. No. Oh, but, his cows were gone after that. They were barbecued. They were gone. Well, that's true. So how many people attended what's Well, there? there were supposed to be 200,000, but because they had no gates and, and very, not a really good fence, it was just like a wire fence, Over the, the estimate was over 500,000 people showed up because they just came and went as they, as they wanted to. There was, there was no... So what you're telling me, there was no social distancing happening? There was no social <laughs> It was just a big backyard party. Actually, do you know how much, uh, well, reportedly, do you know how much Max got paid for that section? No, how much? $75,000. And like in the six, And do you imagine, in the, that's a lot of dough, man. Well, <laughs> 10000 went to the cleanup, I imagine, but yeah. But it wow. was yeah, it was about six hundred acres that he rented out for this venue. I mean, but they were I mean, there were people camping out there. There was nudity and drugs, and uh, it was just a crazy, crazy time. Well, you know, I mean, it was a big event because it was outside. They'd never really had a big event like that outside before a concert, and everybody that showed up, they were not prepared. I mean, it pretty much rained almost the whole time. It rained every day. And, you know, the people had no tents. There were, there, they didn't bring enough food. It was, it was a disaster. Yes. Um, but there were 32 acts that, that performed at Woodstock. The first one was Richie Havens. He was the first one on stage. But because they didn't stick to the time allotment, it went so far off schedule. Well, there's also bands heard about it and decided they wanted to show up and they weren't even scheduled. Yeah, well, there were yeah, there was there were there were people that actually performed as fillers. Yeah, uh, that weren't even yeah, you're right, that weren't scheduled. They just showed up. They just showed up. They heard they were, this huge thing was happening in at Woodstock, and they went. Man, you know what? I just I just uh, googled a, a a picture of this. <laughs> it's a great picture. It's a picture of Max with his wife. I saw that. Yeah, and they've got. Smiles from ear to ear. Look at the background. Look, look at the, the background. Like a, like a bomb went off. Oh, yeah. <laughs> just a freaking mess. Okay, you have to save that. And I'll put it on the show notes. Oh, yeah. yeah. You yeah. can see this. Well, he's got part of the 75,000 just kind of flashing out of his uh, breast pocket. <laughs> he's got a big smile. You know, they say, the, they say the worst performance at Woodstock was the Grateful Dead. They said uh, out of all 32 acts, and the Grateful Dead was one of the premium bands to attend, right? And they were paid twenty five hundred dollars to be there. Not everybody was paid, right? They, you know, they there were they got twenty five hundred, and they were the worst performing band. Jefferson Airplane and Janis Joplin were each paid seventy five hundred. Uh, CCR, they were paid ten thousand dollars to be there. And that was pretty big at the time. Um, Joan Baez was also paid paid ten thousand dollars. She was pregnant at the time when she played Woodstock. And guess who got the most? Bob Dylan. I don't know. Jimi Hendrix. Bob Dylan wasn't there. Oh, that's right. Yeah, Bob, Bob Dylan, Dylan wasn't, wasn't there. there. Jimi Hendrix, Hendrix was paid $18,000. And what's ironic about that? He said, as long as I go on last, I don't want anybody following me. He was, you know, he's pretty high on himself at the time, I guess. Yeah, yeah. So because everything was so far behind schedule... He was supposed to perform on Sunday night, the last day of the show. He actually went on Monday morning, like I think it was at 9 a.m. in the morning, 
Out of the 500,000, only 40,000 people were left that actually watched yeah, that's them. That's what you get for being a prima well, donna. Now, because it was being recorded for a documentary, we got all of the classic footage of him playing the Star Spangled Banner and you know all those great tunes, right? So it's in the documentary. But yeah, he only played to 40,000 instead of 500,000. Wow. Wow. Actually, you know, uh, something else, Rolling Stone magazine paid a tribute to uh, Max, uh, the farm owner, with a full-page obituary. Which is rare because it's a non-musician. Like they don't, they've never right. done anything like that right. before. But yeah, they paid. Well, I can to imagine him. Mean, allowing him, or allowing them to use his farm, is a big deal. Oh, absolutely, man, for yeah. sure. Yeah. And I just want to stick up for the Grateful Dead a little bit. I'm not, a, I'm not a big Deadhead, really. I'm not. No, me either. Uh, but just to clarify, because it rained so much. Uh, the reason they, I guess, they put on such a bad show was because the equipment got very wet. And they were getting shocks, electrical shocks from their equipment. And I guess it affected performance. I guess that would do it. Right? So. Yeah. And Joe Cocker was on stage. It was raining so much, the roof over the stage caved in. It collapsed. So they went, they popped holes in in the middle of the uh, the overhang. The tarp? Yeah. Yeah, to make sure the water would come through. Joe Cocker's, if you look, we should include this in show notes too. There's a picture of him standing there. He's singing and he's soaking wet. Everybody thought he was just sweating. He was soaked because of the rain coming down on him from the roof. Kind of defeats the whole purpose of the tarp, doesn't it? You, what, yes. You know, at that point, just take the tarp down, maybe. <laughs> yeah, instead of all coming down in one spot, at least it's... Yes. Actually, there was a lot of money thrown around. I don't know. I want to beat this to death, but I'm still, I'm just intrigued about this Max guy. Uh, his neighbor, his neighbors were, were sued him for $35,000. So he's, he got paid 75000 His neighbors sued him for 35000 And then he... 10000 um, in cleanup. Yeah. But then, <laughs> with, then he put a claim in to the uh, organizers of the venue. That is, his farm got like pretty much almost destroyed. And he received 50 grand for that. Wow. There's much money flying all around. Wow. And you got to put this in 1969 dollar terms. That's right? a, yeah. yeah, that's a lot. Yeah. Right. Oh, yeah. But he did lose all his cows. <laughs> no, I'm joking. I don't know what happened to his cows. You know, they had, they had a medical team there as well because you could imagine the drugs and everything. But what they weren't prepared for were the LSD trips that, that, that the kids were having. Right. And there's a thing called the Hog, Hog Farm Commune. And what they did, they came to the rescue. They set up tents, and they had like 80, 85 uh, people trained in dealing with people tripping on LSD. So if it wasn't for them, uh, it would have been a disaster. And you know what? There's only two deaths out of that whole thing. I was going to ask you, how many people died as of the event? Only two. One was an overdose. Right. And the other one was a 17-year-old uh, kid that was sleeping in a sleeping bag that got run over by a tractor. Oh, I thought you said he got trampled by cows. No, not the cows. But no, a tractor ran over him because he didn't know he was in the sleeping bag. Oh, man. Yeah. Yikes. I think this was after the show was, the thing was done and he was just laying in the Still laying in the the middle of the field. Yeah, probably when when Jimi Hendrix is on. (laughs) Probably, probably. All right, let's move on. Two bands, one more thing. Two bands that were supposed to perform there uh, backed out. Um... One was the Jeff Beck group, because they had just broken up, uh, but they were invited. And the other one was Iron Butterfly. Uh, they got stuck at the airport. And Iron Butterfly was pretty big at the time. Isn't that funny? Iron Butterfly, Led Zeppelin. Do you think there's a connection there? Yeah, I don't know. Just no. saying. 
Now, who, no. was, who was it we talked about on our last uh, episode? They, she decided to go to Dick Cavett's show instead of going to Woodstock. Oh, she wrote, she wrote the song, uh, Woodstock. Do you remember who that was? I can't remember. No. Joni Mitchell. Joni Mitchell. Mitchell. Oh, yeah, that's right. Talking to Dick Cavett instead of being at Woodstock. Probably a good thing. <laughs> Probably a good thing. Like, it, what a mess it was. It was people were couple, covered in mud. Uh, uh, well, there, there's a documentary on Woodstock Oh, you've got to watch well. it. That's it's really too. fascinating. Yeah. I think they should do a show on Max. I'm still reading about this guy. <laughs> Anyways, let's go. <laughs> That's Woodstock, 1969. Right. So another one, 1969. I'll jump in with the the Beatles' last public performance. That's classic. Yeah, we talked about it. It was on the the roof of uh, the Apple... Apple Corps. Apple Corps. Mm -hmm. uh, January 30th, 1969. Now, they were up there. The whole purpose of that whole uh, filming was to be part of their film, Let It Be. That's right. Um, But... It was it was going to be, and they didn't know at the time, but it was going to be their last public performance. And you remember the last song they played? I do, Get Back. That's right. And at the end of Get Back, what does John say? I got blisters on my fingers? No, that's no, Helter that's Skelter. Helter Skelter. <laughs> oh, it, yeah, what's he, what's he say? I forget. He says, I'd like to thank... No, I'd like to say thank you on behalf of the group and ourselves, and I hope we pass the audition. That's right. Now, that was a horrible John Lennon, by the way. Well, I guess Is that what that was? I think so. <laughs> I thought he had something stuck it sounded in his like throat. Papa Smurf. I'm not sure what that was. <laughs> I can always count on you guys to, you know, build up an ego. Uh, but it was kind of prophetic because uh, it was uh, to be their last, their last public performance. Yeah, yeah. You know that Let It Be, you know, that came out in 1970. That was actually their, that was actually completed... Before Abbey Road. Did you know that? What Let It Be was. Yeah. But Let It Be wasn't released until after Abbey That's Road. That's right. But right. In, in the studio, Abbey Road was the last one they completed. And then right. Let It Be was released the last. Right. Yeah. Hmm. Just just a matter of fact there. The more you know. What, yeah. Do you know who, who played with them on the roof? Who they invited to play with them? Well, I'd like to say Billy Preston, because I love Billy Preston. That is correct. There you go. And you know, some of the Beatles actually wanted to make him the fifth Beatle. Uh, Billy Preston is fantastic. He's really, really good. Yeah. yeah, yeah. They, uh, and actually, he's one of the only people the Beatles credited on one of their songs. Is that right? Huh? Yeah, they said the Beatles with Billy Preston ah. on the song Get Back. Yeah. From the roof there. Yeah. It's the only time they ever did that. Yeah. Amazing. Let's it talk is. about somebody else. I, we could talk about the Beatles all night. Child wouldn't want to, but... No. That's okay. That's so, okay. No. Did you guys ever see the Beatles? <laughs> what? As a group? Let me see. Let me see. No. Let's well, see. You, well, you're old Candlestick enough. Candlestick Park, 1969. Yeah. I, I don't think I was old enough. You weren't? To go to San Francisco. Really? I'm not going to say how old you were, but no, you wouldn't have been. No. You were born then. Why didn't you go? Because you weren't old enough. That's, there you go. All right, but hey, you know who I, you know who I did see? Max Yeager. Max no. Yeager. I, I'd love to have a beer yeah. with Max. Unfortunately, he's dead now. But <laughs> All right. I yeah. know who your first concert was. Yeah, and th- that's why I, I kind of prompted you guys for that, because um, there's two things I talk about. Uh, kind of bragging rights. 
One is meeting Clint Eastwood, mm-hmm. shaking his hand, having in, a beer with him. In Carmel. Where? It wasn't in Carmel. Was it in Carmel? It was in yeah. California. Yeah. Well, it's Carmel, that, California. Yeah, but he that was wasn't the mayor. in Carmel, though. He was the mayor there. Anyway. Um, where was it? Los Angeles? Again, again, you were you were smoking doobies and didn't know where you were. Dude, what are you talking about? <laughs> I was in California. Where else in California did you meet him? Yeah, I knew you were going to ask me that. Well, you know, you brought it up. You I didn't know, know where you were? I don't remember where it was. Well, he was the mayor of Carmel, so maybe it was Carmel. Who said he was the mayor? I didn't say he was the mayor of Carmel. He was the mayor of Car- Carmel. Yeah. Who gives a crap? Let me say sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, oh shook, his, shook his hand. Yeah. Had a beer with him yeah. at the bar, and all he wanted to do was talk about hockey, which great. Well, but because everybody else wants to talk to him about all the other stuff, and he gets bored of it, right? Exactly. So, when he entered the room, everybody rushed him, yeah. and the guy I was working with, my VP in sales, we both said, you know what? Let's, let's not. Let's go to the bar. The bar just cleared out, so let's go to the bar. Where is he going to go after he shakes everybody? He's going to go to the bar. So after everybody got done with him, Came to the bar. It was only us three. We talked hockey for about 20 minutes. Had a beer with him, with Clint. It was great. Anyway, that was one thing. I don't want to talk about that too much. But the other thing is, my first concert, I saw Johnny Cash. The Man in Black. Nice. Yeah. Where? Where'd you see him? That was in the... um, I'm sorry, I'm asking you where again. Did you know where you were when you saw him? (laughs) It was at a revolving uh, stage. That was... um, Melody Fair. Melody Fair. That's right. Over near Buffalo, New York. That's right. Melody Fair with the revolving uh, stage. So it, it, it's a, it was a great, great place to see somebody. It doesn't, there wasn't a bad seat in the place. Well, let me ask you a question. Did you appreciate it at the time? Not at all. Because uh, uh, mom and dad said, hey, you know what? Uh, good dress. We're going to go. Because I guess they did, couldn't afford a babysitter. I don't know. They, hey, brought me along. And I said, we're going to a concert? Like, like who are we going to see? Johnny Cash. I was like, what? Who the hell, who the hell is that? <laughs> are you serious? <laughs> That's pretty cool. It's amazing. cool. And I'm lucky enough, I think it was, like, it was my first concert. So it doesn't, I don't think back then it really mattered who was on stage. Just the, seeing live music, it made such an impression. Well, Melody Fair too, you must have been pretty close because all the seats are close that, to the stage there. We were. I remember seeing his wife's face because like, June Carter June, was there. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it, it was. It was very close. So I think that helped me remember because... Now I can appreciate it. Oh my gosh, that I saw Johnny Cash. Yeah, very, yeah exactly. It was, it was amazing. So anyway, that's so that I was just going to talk about um, the uh, the recording, uh, the album, like at the the prison, Folsom Blues. Oh, Folsom Prison Blues. Yeah. Yes, yeah. yeah. So that was back in was it nineteen sixty nine? Sixty eight. Sixty eight. Okay, thanks for fact checking me on that. <laughs> that's okay. <laughs> yes. You know the song. Uh, Folsom Prison Blues, though, was much earlier. The The concert he did at, at Folsom Prison, you know, included that song, Folsom Prison Blues, but the song Folsom Prison Blues was much earlier. Right, right. right? He had an infatuation for some reason of um, uh, singing about, like, uh, prisons. prisons. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Folsom Prison Blues was actually released in 1955. The concert at the prison was May of 1968. Okay, okay, but right, 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 right. Okay, that's that's right. Yeah, but um, yeah, but so so nowadays, like that's I don't know, I appreciate Johnny Cash now. I've been going back and listening to his music. It's it's great. You know, you know Johnny Cash had to pay uh, Gordon Jenkins, who had a song called Crescent City Blues, because of the first line in uh, 
uh, what's the line? Uh, I hear the train a coming. Yeah. Right? That that yeah. line, it's rolling round the bend. Yeah. That was the same line used in Gordon Jenkins' song. Ooh. Oh, yeah. That so sucks. He, he ended up paying him anywhere, I think it was eighty to $100,000. Yeah. Uh, Pocket change. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, that, that uh, it spent 18 weeks on the country charts, that song. Yeah, I mean, Cash, I mean, you look back, Johnny Cash had a ton of classic songs. You know, I Walk the Line, Ring of Fire. Uh, and he, he wasn't the best singer, mm-hmm. but he just had a way of delivering the lyrics and his presence on stage. And, you know, I envy you for actually seeing him live. Yeah, well, I wish I could go back to see it now. You have more appreciation for it. Oh, for sure. But still, you, you got to do it. Yeah, yeah that's yeah. great. So, but that was a big live album for him. In '68, you know the 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 cheering from the crowds. So it was live anyway. But during the song Folsom uh, Folsom Prison Blues, when he delivers the line, "I shot a man in Reno just to watch him die," yeah, and you hear the the, the crowd cheer. Yeah, that was dubbed in. That that they didn't really cheer like that at the at the live performance. They they really yeah they layered that in. Oh, what you oh that kind of ruins it. Yeah, what the hell? What'd you yeah. say that for? Because it's a fact. Okay, sorry burst your bubble but yeah right actually um he was he was quoted saying that's where things really got started for him after that uh, recording and then making the album the release that he said that's when things really started to move for him well and did you know that one line i shot a man in reno i just said that caused some radio stations to stop playing the song do you know why yeah kennedy yeah, because Saran Saran had just assassinated Robert Kennedy, yeah. and the radio stations didn't want to play anything with that kind of violence. Yeah. or Things uh, were a little sensitive at yeah, that time. Yeah, so uh, the song probably would have done even better, uh, but it had a setback when the radio stations stopped playing it because of that line. I can see that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 I can see that. For sure. Okay, my Beatles, well, to your Beatles, I like the Rolling Stones. Oh, classic. The Stones. And I, I wanted to mention about the one song in particular in the, in the 60s, which was huge. Well, them. I mean, the Stones were introduced, were the part of the British invasion, and were introduced to America in the 60s as well. Right. But this one song was, was huge for them, and it's I Can't Get No Satisfaction. It's one of my favorite Stone songs. Yeah. Well, it's a classic. That was 1965, right? 65, that's yeah. right. Yeah. And you mentioned uh, Ed Sullivan earlier. Well... Like the, like the popular ones back then, the Stones were on it as well. It was actually 1966, and um, they they or he asked them to change the lyrics uh, from trying to make trying to make some girl was bleeped out of the of the family show. I guess they they actually bleeped it out. I heard about that. There was always something, right? That yeah. wasn't exactly kosher, I guess. But yeah, so the the Stones got bleeped beeped on their show. It was released as a single in the United States, and that was actually the Rolling Stones' first uh, number one hit in the U.S. And in the U.K., the song was their fourth number one because when its initial release, it was considered a little bit too sexually suggestive, uh, so it didn't get as much airplay as it did in the States, but it was their fourth number one hit later. Satisfaction is one of the world's most popular songs, and it's second on Rolling Stones' 500 Greatest songs of all time list. And Keith thought of it while he was asleep. <laughs> <laughs> he did. Actually, this goes back, this goes back to the cassette. Um, he said uh, he was 
writing the main riff for it, uh, Satisfaction in His Sleep, then thanks to a Phillips cassette player Thank that you. was tucked under him and his guitar, he was able to capture it. Nice. Yes. Well, speaking of the Stones, uh, I know this guy. You know this guy? Yeah. Well, now we're, what? Uh, Fix this up with some weed? Finally. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. Uh, he, he was the personal valet at a very high-end hotel where the different rock groups would stay when they were performing in the city. And he was their personal valet. And he's got some great stories. Oh, I bet he's got some dirt. Specifically, he's got some great stories about the Stones. And uh, we're going to be inviting him in as a guest in uh, an upcoming uh, episode. And uh, I believe his uh, nickname, his handle is uh, Gizzer. Yeah, we call him the Giz. And when he comes in... We're going to get down to to Gizness. That's yeah. right. So we'll look, look forward to uh, the Giz coming on and sharing some inside scoops on some of the stories. I think we'll probably start with his story about the Stones. It's a, it's a really good story. <laughs> That'd be great. Also, make sure you check out our show notes because we put uh, a music playlist for all these songs mentioned in this uh, podcast. And you can listen to them on Spotify. So look for that, uh, look for that link. With that, we are wrapping up this uh, episode of the volume number one, the 1960s, some I'm memorable lo- moments. And I'm looking forward to the 70s. Yes. One of the greatest decades Ever. of music of all time, especially yes. rock. The best. Yeah. So we'll look for you on our next episode with Oak, Queeks, and Cha, the, the Jabber Guys. guys. Remember to go to our website, jabberguys.com, to subscribe to our podcast, Inside Rock and Weird and Wacky Worlds.